Welcome back to That's What I Call Marketing. I'm your host, Connor Byrne. And of course, this is the podcast where you'll hear from the leading lights in the marketing world and listen to their unique stories. And today, certainly, I have a leading light joining me. It is a world exclusive. Okay, I might be overdoing that a little bit, but it is the first interview that Jenny Romaniuk is doing uh, around her new book, Better Brand Health. As you know, Jenny is a research professor and associate director of the Ehrenberg Bass Institute at the University of South Australia and author of Building Distinctive Brand Assets and How Brands Grow Part 2. Jenny's research covers brand equity, mental availability, brand health metrics, advertising effectiveness, distinctive assets, word of mouth and the role of loyalty and growth. She's the developer of the Distinctive Asset Grid, which is used by companies around the world to assess the strength and strategic potential of their brand's distinctive assets. Today, we cover some of the key concepts in Jenny's first two books and dig into her new book, Better Brand Health, understanding how it came about, and it's been a long time in the making, and what some of the key themes in it are. It's all about making sure we measure the right things in the right way. Oh, and I also find out what it's like working with Byron Sharp. As always, Jenny is a fascinating guest. So let's get going and listen to That's What I Call Marketing and Jenny Romaniuk about better brand health. Jenny, thank you so much for joining me on That's What I Call Marketing. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Um, Well, listen, we've so much to cover. Um, I'd love to just start with a little bit about your your pack, your background, and your path. I, f- I find it fascinating, you know, when I meet people like yourself, understanding how they how they got to where they were, and was it like a linear path to to marketing, market research? I, I think you wasn't a true linear path. Uh, am I right in saying this wasn't your? You didn't grow up saying I wanted I want to do this forever. Well, God no, no, no. <laughs> I went through the usual phases of things. No, it's actually funnily enough talking to my um, older niece today about my younger niece who's just turned 19 and, you know, having um, finished a high school in COVID is kind of like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I don't know it's all of that angst. And I, I pointed out to my older niece, I said, at her age, I was just about to embark on a year and a half of a degree I would not finish. <laughs> What was that in? So, you know, it all it, it works out. So say so don't put too much pressure. <laughs> she shouldn't put too much pressure yeah. on herself to have it all sorted out at 19 because I sure as hell didn't. I was studying occupational therapy. Okay. Okay. Yeah, very different, I think. Is it? Yeah, hmm. it feels like it is. Well, it's problem solving. It's just different sorts of problem solving. And, um, yeah, yes. It, it, I was either going to be a really, really good one or a really, really bad one, and I genuinely couldn't tell. So it was a pretty risky proposition. So I went, I think I better change now because, yeah, I don't want to be a really bad one. And how did you end up then into in, in market research? Because, you know, to me that looks, I mean, you call it problem solving, but it is it, quite different. Um, well, I was always a um, hard sciences girl. And like I did physics, chemistry, okay. maths one, maths two. And then they made us do a humanities. And I went, oh, great. <laughs> um, what's the... What's the most concrete of the humanities? And so I chose economics. And, so, okay. and that was actually my best subject. But I didn't want to be an accountant. I didn't want to work for the government. So I just went, oh, well, don't worry about that. 
Anyway, when I was a, um, I lived at a boarding college with about 180 other people who'd come from the country and there was someone there doing this business degree uh, um, with a major in marketing. Um, funnily enough, he ended up becoming an arms dealer. Um, but um, <laughs> <laughs> See, not many are paths all over the place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, he, he, told, he, he told me two things I will always remember. One is he described what it was like to go to a, a, a trade show for arms and how you never look anybody in the eye because there's a lot of interesting people there. And secondly, he told me he could um, get, if I ever need anyone kneecapped, he could find someone for me for 500 bucks. Oh All right, Bella, it's useful, it's it's useful to, to have up your sleeve. You never know. Anyway, um, anyway, so he was doing this degree called business marketing and I was kind of like, well, that sounds much more pragmatic than being a, an economist or something. I just had no idea what that was. Um, and so when I just worked out that occupational therapy wasn't the path, um, I thought, well, maybe I'll do a business degree. I was quite good at economics. Business sounds very practical. Well, yeah, I'll do that. Um, but still had no idea what I would do in business because I'm not very good at reading paperwork. And so when I'm lining up to um, enrol, because in those days you didn't do it online, you had to yeah. go to a whole lineup sort of thing. And I'm just like sort of around, sort of got these papers in my hand thinking, and I'm hearing a bit of conversation of two people in front of me where someone was asked, you know, what are you going to major in? I'm like, major? What, what's that? And I'm thinking, oh, God, another decision I haven't quite made. And there's like literally two people in front of me. And so, and this is quite ironic given what I ended up researching, uh, what popped into my head was marketing. I think they do marketing good here. And so when you said, what, what made you want to do? I said, uh, marketing. Oh, um, wow. And that's how I ended up in marketing. Oh, that's fa- that is fascinating. I, I genuinely I find it so interesting how people kind of, those moments, right? End up where they of, were. Yeah, 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 end up where they were. And then obviously it's, um, it's you know, it's been an incredible path. You you joined the Edinburgh Bass Institute. Um, how did that come about? How did you end up end up working there? Well, again, a bit of, a bit of happy accidents. Um, I think my whole, my whole life's been a lot of happy accidents. So um, nice. I finished my marketing degree and had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. I knew I – I remember this thought I had in my head is I never want to care what dishwashing liquid people use. Now, I say that and I feel <laughs> I mean, no disrespect to anyone at PG, Unilever, uh, some of those people I know really well. But that was the, the naive, you know, 21-year-old – thought through my head so I'm like I don't know what to do so uh, I'm just going to go and I met some people from the US discovered about I could do a working holiday visa in the UK and so I just went okay. I'm going to go do the Aussie backpacker thing yeah um so I worked three jobs and got saved up money to buy what was then a very expensive airfare because you didn't travel as much then and um backpacked around the US and then went to London and worked now just before I was about about two weeks before I go, just after I bought my ticket, um, Byron actually called me and said, you know, we're starting a research centre and we're looking for um, people who'd like to do a Masters of Marketing. Are you interested? And I kind of went, well, actually, yeah, I would be, but I've just bought a ticket around the world. So, yeah, not right now, but, you know, thanks. Thanks for thinking of me. Anyway, fast forward two years later, I come back. Okay. Not really got this travel thing out of my system, but run out of money and figure I may as well get a life at some point. Because when I was doing it, you couldn't, with the working holiday busy, you were not allowed to work in your profession. It was purely bar, nanny, 
gotcha. office admin. Yeah. You know, I couldn't get a marketing job in London on my working holiday visa, so that had been changed. So I came back and then um, I went for a few very bad interviews where I was so I was like, please don't give me the job. Please don't give me the job. <laughs> Well, you know, I grew up in a working class family and, you know, if I'd gone home to my parents and said someone offered me a job and I didn't take it. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. God, I would have been, like, thrown out on my ear. Why, that was why not? not something that was that was not what you did. So I was like, please don't give me the job. I really, I'm in so much trouble. Interview, but I really <laughs> don't want it. Um, anyway, and then um, there was an ad in the paper, and it's the first and only time that the what was then the Marketing Science Center had ab- advertised for marketing by research candidates. And so I answered an ad in the paper, went in for an interview, and um, did my presentation, and I'm just thinking, I just hope they give it to me because I really don't want to do any more bad interviews. <laughs> and at the end of it, um, remember Byron and uh, the professor in charge, David Cook, at the time, took me into another room and said, okay, um, all right, well, when do you want to start? And I'm like, oh, oh wow. when do you want me to start? And they're like, oh, tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, tomorrow's not great. Can we <laughs> look up Monday? And they're like, Okay. All right, and that was it. Oh wow, amazing! That's that's fantastic. I I love that. How um, it, had Byron known you that when he reached out to you the first time? And he was my lecturer. Yeah, he was. He my was lecturer. lecturer. Okay, I didn't connect that. Okay, yeah. ah, so got you. Um, brilliant. And can I ask? You've worked with Byron for a long time. What's Byron like mm-hmm. to work with? It's hard to say because I've worked with him in many different incarnations and I don't actually sort of work directly a lot with him now because we both work with different teams of people. So, you know, I've had him as a lecturer, I've had him as a supervisor for two degrees. In fact, he was my only supervisor for two degrees, uh, which, you know, usually gets me a lot of sympathy from people. (laughs) I'm going, wow, you made it. So whenever they think their supervisor is giving a hard time, I just go, hey, me, I'm Byron, two degrees, master's and PhD, still alive, still sane, sort of. Um, Yeah, I mean, the thing about Byron is he's usually very good at getting to the heart of an issue. Um, Sometimes he does it a bit abruptly, which anyone who's been to his um, presentations and things will know that's his style. He kind of gets to the point. And um, so that, depending on where you are in your career, that can be refreshing or heartbreaking. So yeah. you go through that that whole spectrum um, in there. But, you know, he's such a smart guy and he, um, you know, it's just, um, yeah, um, you, he always gives you something to think about. You might, I know I don't always agree, but I will always think about it because, um, yeah. And that must be, I, I would, I would ima- I, well, I don't know, but I imagine then those conversations you would have, you know, it may be about disagreements or things that are, you know, are fascinating discussions because mm-hmm. you're both coming from, you know, such a place of, you know, knowledge and data, right? <laughs> so it's probably to get this big data yeah, and off. It's, and it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. And it's probably one of the biggest misconceptions externally. I, I know, I, I know particularly, it doesn't happen as much now, but I used to have situations where I'd meet with someone for the first time who knew Byron, who then would proceed to tell me what I thought. Right. Okay. <laughs> and I'd be like, You've just met me and you already think you know what I think about stuff. And so that was always um, coming through. It was, it was always a little bit like, hmm, okay. But that happens less and less now. Uh, well, yes. And look, um, obviously, you know, Byron authored How Brands Grow and then you co-authored uh, How Brands Grow 2 and Building Distinctive Brand Assets. These are like seminal books in marketing. I mean, they are must-reads, I think, for all <laughs> marketers. But what is it about 
these books? And I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but like, why do you think they've had such an impact on the marketing community? Oh, I don't know if I'm necessarily the most qualified person to ask. I mean, I, I like the process of writing a book because I like the bigger picture narrative. I was one of those weirdos who really enjoyed doing a research thesis because it's a big piece of you don't have to, you have to be succinct within a thought, but you don't have to cram everything down to be too quick. You can actually have your time to take you through it. And what I try to do in my books is respect the reader enough to do two things, which is a bit of a tightrope. One is not assume they will just agree with me on everything just because I say it, so provide the evidence behind why I've come to that conclusion, but not feel the need to really be too, um, not treat them like idiots basically, you know, that they know something. But, yeah. but they also would expect me to defend what it is I'm saying. I'm not preaching a gospel. I'm just giving a perspective that's been informed by the research that I've seen. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, one of the things for me is, <clears throat> excuse me, as a reader of the books is I feel that you kind of bring, you're bringing people along with you. Like, as you say, there's no necessarily assumption that you know this information that I'm sharing. It, you know, there's explanation and then there's the the research and data to back up the the perspective that that you're sharing which you know i think for me it didn't feel like you're kind of left kind of almost drowning in in theory mm -hmm. or you know what i mean so that, that for me i think is is incredibly uh, helpful in reading reading the books and mm -hmm. um, i think some of the uh, i mean there's a lot of key you know pieces of information uh and and in in the books but like one of the things and i was you know thinking about it the other day as I'm preparing for this is that the idea around getting more customers to grow your brand right and i know this sounds like blind maybe blindingly obvious when you say it in just that simple way to grow your brand you need more customers but it isn't always practiced and it isn't always fully understood like why is that why is do you think it's not always practiced and understood and then what can people do to to kind of change their perspective yeah a turn of phrase i used to use it's, it's probably a bit clever which is why i sort of stopped using it but i always liked and that is that growth is about changing the size and not the nature of your customer base right and and the two parts are that important so first of all is the growth in size more people but the, the, not the nature tells you that the people you will get will be roughly in proportion than what you've already got. Because what happens is people go, yeah, 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 I've got to get new customers, but I've got to get heavy customers because they're more valuable and I know that if I get those, you know, one person who buys ten, the category 10 times is worth so much more than a person who buys one time. Well, not really, only if, if they buy 10 times but only you once. And the person yes. who buys one time only buys you once. So they're actually worth exactly the same. You know, potential is not the same as actual buying. Um, so that's the thing that I think most people miss is it's not just about size. It's about size, but it's about that your customer base's characteristics will remain largely the same. You'll just have more of them. And we even see this with new brands when they enter a market. That um, you know, So if you take new brands, new launches coming in, and you look at what their customer bases look like 
And if you define success uh, based on you know, the number of sales they ended up getting, I know it's a pretty crude measure because there's profitability and stuff, but just, you know, yeah. usually then, you know, everyone has a target sales and more sales for a new, a very rarely, you very rarely see a case where fewer sales for a new brand is a good outcome. <laughs> um, but if you just look at that and if you just say, well, let's imagine the ones that are most successful are the ones that uh, got more customers. Um, and the ones that are less successful, the ones that got less customers. Is there anything else that's different about these brands other than the sheer number of customers in terms of the makeup of, you know, how their customers buy, how often they buy, et cetera? And the answer is no, not really at all. The only yeah. difference between the more successful in share ones and the less successful ones is that those manage to recruit more people. Um, and so we see this everywhere around, and this is the law that Andrew Ehrenberg uh, founded, which is the brand user profiles hardly differ law. Yeah. Um, all reinforces that as well. If, you grew, if you're a small brand or a brick brand, the profile of customers you have will be largely the same unless you introduce some artificial constraints on who you recruit. So if you say, I'm going to be a rideshare service only for women, well, yeah, of course you're going to have fewer men then. You yeah. make that decision. And maybe tied to that then is, you know, the, the, I guess the concept of targeting and, and personas. And I, 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 I heard you said, excuse me, that, you know, don't shoot yourself with narrow targets, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, maybe to that point, if you decide, right, I'm going to be just a brand for, you know, women rideshare, that, that's it. So then that's where you're targeting, mm -hmm. right? But, I, you know, what's your view then on kind of creating these personas? Like we've all seen them where it's, you know, the, the audience is, you know, this person, they're this age, they have, you know, four cats and seven kids and, you know, they like sea swimming, right? <laughs> you know, and, and then we try create marketing for that person. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, um, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, historically I would have said that's wrong because it actually doesn't reflect your customer base. Right. And that probably if you actually profiled your customer base, and we have had people who've done this, you'll find that you sell much more outside the target than you do within the target. Particularly the smaller your target, the, the smaller amount it will count for your sales. And when you see large skews in different groups of people for a brand, it's usually they're usually very small groups and it's a very small brand because that's how the only way you can get large skews. You can't get 200% if you've got a 60% incidence. It's mathematically impossible to right. do that. So, um, so yeah, so, so that's partly where we have to go. Um, that's not, um, that's not useful from a pragmatic perspective. And, but it's also not useful from a representative perspective. And given the discussion on diversity, et cetera, actually acknowledging you've got a very diverse customer base mm -hmm. in terms of characteristics, I think is even more important and not falling for stereotypes. I mean, I remember seeing, um, uh, seeing someone previewing me ads for um, uh, whitening toothpaste and it had lots of young, glamorous models going down there and I went, hmm, do older people like to have their teeth white? What about men? Do they like to have their teeth white? It was just a very, very homogenous group of people. It had lots of people in the ad but they all looked exactly the same and so that's where the danger of this whole thing is and it's not so much that you're explicitly um, excluding people it's you're implicitly excluding yes. people and people yeah. are just like that's not relevant to me that doesn't describe my life that's not where I am I'm not 
sashaying down a um, runway. I am sashaying down the supermarket aisle with a trolley and <laughs> striking mm-hmm. out of me, you know. So that, yeah. And I've, I've, I've got my school reunion coming up and I just would like, you know, a couple of shades wider teeth so I smile nice and they don't, you know, ask me about my divorce or something like that. Yes, yeah. And how about then, you know, in you know, for, for a brand that has maybe a smaller budget, but still wants to grow, right? You know, so they're like, I want to grow, I mm-hmm. want to reach more people, but I have a small budget. I mean, is there any benefit there and kind of saying, well, let me, let me focus first on a target and build from that base? Yeah, there's, I mean, that's an idea, but that's, there's an assumption in that. Now, first of all, when we talk about things like reach, and we say, you know, aim to reach the market, it's not about that you will reach everybody. I mean, it would be nice. But yeah. the reality is even the biggest brands usually don't have the budget to do that. Um, I still remember going to lots of different brands who are saying, oh, no, we can't do that. We don't have Coca-Cola's budget. No, we don't have Coca-Cola's budget. No, we don't have Coca-Cola's budget. And then going to Coke and they go, well, we can't do that. And I'm like, but you're the ones with the budget apparently because that's what everyone else has told me. Um, yeah. No one has the budget to reach everybody all the time, but it's actually about the intent and not wasting money rather than doing it. So your assumption that trying to find a small group in a big market will be a cost-effective use of resources, and that doesn't seem bound in the fact. Um, one of our researchers, Alicia Barker, just had a piece published on Small But Mighty talking about building tiny yeah. brands because she's just finished her master's thesis on that topic, uh, looking at how very small brands grow. Um, yeah, yeah. I do, and because I think it is a that's a very interesting point about the coke budgets. I I do think people who who have who work in smaller brands and smaller budgets do sometimes think, yes, this is all this is all great, but how does it apply to me? So you know, it, it is great a that mm-hmm. there's now something that they can read. I mean, I think it is applicable, but like something that kind of brings that to life for them. So we certainly make sure we share that with people. Can we talk, I, I want to move on to, to the new book very shortly, but I just wanted to touch on a couple of other um, topics. Can you talk to me a bit about category entry points? Um, explain what they are for, for anybody who may not know them. And I know there's, again, a lot there um, and, and maybe how a brand can start thinking about them. Yeah, okay. So a category entry point. So we often think when we label someone as a category buyer that it's like a permanent tattoo that they're always carrying around. So, you know, we're now, it's like 5.30 in the evening here. And so, you know, I'm a category buyer of coffee, but I'm not right now Yeah. because I don't drink coffee in the evening. Rarely. On occasion I have, but not not usually. I'm a morning coffee drinker. But tomorrow morning... I will wake up and thoughts will go with my head of which the various coffee options I have will be appropriate. And that will depend on a whole range of different factors that are going on in my life. It's actually nothing to do with the coffee brands at that stage. It's actually about me and my life. And so category entry points are about buyers. They're pre-brand and they're what helps the buyer identify usually through their memory because we often we go on memory first because it's the easiest source we have of possible options that will just get what we need at that time. Um, now, how you can think about it as a market, and that's why I developed the framework of the Ws, because the danger, so, so often when people see category entry points, say, oh, yeah, 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 I know this, 
but usually they've seen a narrow slice of it. So if you've done a usage and attitude study, if you've done um, occasion-based segmentation, if you've done um, motivation studies, you will have seen elements of category entry points in them. But we need to bring these all together because they are about both the internal and the external because I can tomorrow have had a really crap night's sleep and so need something strong, but I'm also catching up with a friend and so both of those factors will affect what I will choose for coffee in the morning. Right. And so that's an external as well as an internal. So the framework of the Ws reminds us of all of these potential things that come out. So it's the why, the where, the when, the with whom, the with what, um, the while, and the how feeling, which doesn't have a W. It has a W, has a w there. In yeah. the how. <laughs> in the how. <laughs> Um, and so by going through, and if you want to think about this as a marketer, just look at your category through all of those different angles. So when, where do people buy or consume your category? Um, what time of day? So when is about timing, but it's time of day, time of week, time of year. Um, does it need to be done quickly or um, can it? does it take time? Those are all factors that can influence the options that people will consider appropriate. Um, and then once you've looked at that from all different angles, you can then start to get a sense of, you know, are you currently playing in all of those different areas or do you have something that's viable in all those different areas? So you can have a look at it from a portfolio perspective um, and we do recommend having a look at it from a customer perspective where possible because customers can tell you how much these how often these category and proof points come up in their lives. And, of course, the more commonly they do, the more valuable it is for your brand to be attached to that association in memory. So you can kind of figure out the ones that are the most important for your for your brand, mm-hmm. for the cust- customer base. Well, we, we, yeah, we use, yeah, we use a, basically we bring in three the three sort of key forces that determine whether or not it will be useful for you. So one is... Yes, how common it is. That's the consumer side of it. Secondly, brands typically have history. So there are some things that some brands can say and there are some things that maybe are not very useful either because the brand has a shortfall or a competitor is so dominant that the brand has a perceived shortfall that would be too hard a message to try and you know, it'd be a battle not worth fighting because you would just fight very hard just to get back to even. And then the third force is obviously competitors and what they are also messaging and what they are also got mental advantages on. And when you put those three forces together, you start to get a subset of what the potential options are and then you marry that with your innovation pipeline, your current portfolio of what you think you will be able to deliver on going forward. And so it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle that you put together to come to it. And I I imagine there's a bit of, testing and learning as well within that because you're not just going to sit down and figure it out and go you know we got it like this this is it so imagine well, yeah i mean yeah i mean we try to do it when we do studies so we do this with um companies and when we do it we usually come up with what we call a long short list so it's usually a short list of sort of five to eight category entry points that are all really useful if the brand attached themselves to it and then which ones at any point in time can depend on what's happening in the world, what sort of creative uh, comes out? Because, you know, you might yeah. hand it to creatives and they go, wow, I've got a fantastic idea for number four, but number six has you know, got nothing. 
And so you can go, okay, well, let's work on number four and know that number six is still important, but maybe in a year's time, someone else might have a great idea on that. Um, and the idea is to, in the long run, we're building up wider, fresher networks. Right. Because that's the thing about mental availability and category entry points. It's not about owning one. It's about wider, fresher networks. So you're always thinking about how do I expand my brand's presence in people's brains? Give you, yeah, kind of giving yourself a, a chance. And the, just my last question about what can, what's come before is just explain um, the difference between distinctiveness and differentiation because I think that's quite an important mm-hmm. one um, for, for people to understand. Well, it's actually, it's actually a triangle, not a pair. So people often think that it's it's differentiation versus distinctiveness. Okay. It's not actually. It's different. So differentiation has two components. So first of all, it has the component that you are different from other brands. And secondly, that that difference is important to consumers such that they would buy you because of it. Now, some people argue and go, oh, it can be trivial, it can be perceived differentiation. But actually the heart and economic basis of differentiation is that and if you can offer something that's different that no one else does or better than everyone else then buyers will come to you and they will stay with you and you will lock them in and they won't want to buy anyone else because you deliver on something that they value so linking those two things together actually doesn't make sense when you look at the evidence but we can split them apart right and we can say that Yes, you don't want to look like every other brand. You want to be easily found, and you know, and so, and you want to be and easily identified, whether that be in advertising on shelf. That's your distinctiveness part, but that doesn't actually have to have value. That the value of it is inherent in the ease, rather than the component. So the value is not that you're red. The fact that the value is that red is linked to your brand. Yeah, yeah. You could also be purple linked to your brand, depending on. Um, what it is but you still need to be relevant to buyers that's where the category entry points comes in but that's not about being different on category entry points it's about recognizing that you're in a competitive playing field and so everybody else for common category entry points there's a lot of mental competition because you know lots of brands are linked to it because that's why people come to the category so even if brands don't advertise it's what buyers learn the category does. So, like, even if no bread company says we are good for sandwiches, buyers learn this yes. because they make sandwiches with bread and go, oh, it worked. It held the stuff in and I could eat it and, yay, good sandwich. Um, so, you know, so that's, that's part of what it is. So it's not actually differentiation versus distinctiveness. It's about saying these two parts of differentiation that have been bundled together by economists actually don't make sense together because if they did, we would see a very different empirical world than what we do. But each of them does actually have meaning and usefulness. We just have to separate them out. And so that's why we've taken them into distinctiveness and category entry points. So, yeah, so it's a triangle, not a... Not a competition, is it? So, yeah, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Um, and then, obviously, you know, I, I do want to touch on just the distinctive uh, brand assets then and, and how important that is for brands to start thinking about, you know, distinctive brands as, brand assets. And, and there's a lot, I guess, of potential distinctive brand assets. And is it for you kind of the importance of creating almost a portfolio of distinctive brand assets rather than just kind of relying on 
and one or two, you know, kind of your colour and your logo, perhaps? Yeah, well, I, I mean, to me, well, one is better than none. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, and, and I mean, I see I know, that like, yeah, I, yeah, just, yeah. I was just actually doing a report today whereby we're doing a follow-up on their distinctive assets. And when we did the second wave, um, there was all these new ones that they're putting in. So I think we're going to have to go back and go, hmm, guys, got to focus on bringing one, one or two. Don't keep adding things into the mix because this is why you're not building any of them. Um, so we do need the discipline to, to – you might have a long-term goal of a diverse distinctive asset palette, but your short-term goal should be to build in waves because when we're trying to build memories, we need strong, well, prominent, wide-reaching co-presentation moments with the brand. And those don't come around every you know, second. Yeah. You know, we kind of have to earn that – um, those things. So when we do have them, we want to use them as best as possible. And so we're better off getting kind of traction on one or two assets by doing that. And then when they're strong enough, they become anchors for the next wave of assets. So it actually becomes easier to build the next wave of assets. So for example, McDonald's or KFC, it's easy for them to build a new asset because they've got so many strong old assets yes. that they can use any of them. So they can, you know, even this new eyebrow. I was going to ask thing, you about that. Uh, yeah. yeah, they can put that with I'm loving it, um, the colour combination, yeah. the actual yellow M, you know, there's a whole range of different things they can match with that will act as that co-presentation as well as the name McDonald's. Yeah. Um, and so by having that variety of anchors other than the brand name, you just make it easier to build in the future because you have more co-presentation moments. So I would just encourage people, if you don't have any strong distinctive assets that are close to 100% fame, 100% uniqueness, first thing you should do is just pick the one that gives you the best bet, provided it's actually a valuable asset because um, there are some assets like fonts which are a lot weaker in terms of their usefulness. Yeah. But is it, if it's a decent enough asset, then just focus on that. Succeed at that, then take on the next challenge because one strong asset is better than 10 mediocre ones. That, and that is great, I, I think, advice for anybody starting out on this. That was going to be my next question, but you've, you've just done it anyway. That That is, you know, just if you're thinking about it, start build and then and then kind of go from there because we're not all mcdonald's right we haven't been doing this for no, 50 but McDonald's years was not mcdonald's either yeah, yeah. you know exactly. it's it, it's a, i mean we forget we've learned this over time yeah. distinctive assets are not innate we were yeah. all taught this through repetition and stuff um and you know and that's that's the way we learn yeah um your new book um which is out Currently, people can people can order it and um, copies. I saw as of as of today, as we're speaking, you have had a delivery arrive at your at your office, uh, and I'm looking forward to the next uh, couple of weeks of you going through the alphabet and and giving us kind of an insight <laughs> into the uh, into the book. Um, but what was the purpose and the reasoning behind uh, writing the book? Was it was it from a place of we're not doing this right at the moment? We're not we're not kind of looking at our brand health in the right way? Well, yes, okay. So so going back to the litany of um, happy accidents that Jenny has had in her life that leads her where she is, when I first started at the Institute, 
or it's a marketing science centre, um, the, the hot topic that people were researching was service and relationship quality. And so I came in and they're like, okay, well, you know, you're, I was sharing it off with someone doing a, a master's in relationship quality and they're like, you could do, you know, yours in service quality. So I went away, read everything on it and it bored me to tears. And then I remember walking back from um, a, walking with Byron, um, we had a group meeting and we were sort of walking back to the office and he's like, so, you know, have you, you know, worked out what your topic will be? And I'm like, Nope. <laughs> and he's like, well, normally people come to me and tell me they haven't got one thing before now. I go, hmm, Byron, I don't have anything. And he's like, well, okay, all right. Um, and he said, you know, when people answer brand image studies, they kind of say one brand and then another brand and then another brand. I wonder if there's anything in that. And I went, oh, okay, all right. Then I started reading the branding literature and went, oh, yes, this, this is me. I feel this. I understand this sort of stuff. Um, and then I read some stuff and then I went, oh, no, this is a load of crap too. What am I going to do? I'm never going to be a researcher. This is rubbish. And it was some work that actually Andrew Ehrenberg had done looking at the variability of um, how people link brands to attributes. Anyway, so, but then I read the memory literature, reconciled that and all was happy and continued on that path. So I was always fascinated by this topic and I did my master's, which is very very mediocre, um, and then parlayed that into a PhD, which was much, much, much better. Um, and then sort of after I finished, we were working, and during my PhD, we were working with a lot of companies, and I was actually managing brand health trackers at the time okay. because we had a market research company. Um, well, the market research arm of what we were doing was how we got funding and data to do our research because um, it was at a time when, you know, that was the only way really to get funding um, from there. So it's kind of like had a part-time job doing a thesis, part-time job managing brand trackers. And I saw what went on there and went through the challenges and struggles with that. Um, and then gradually, as we changed our product portfolio, we stopped doing that sort of research. And I sort of stepped away because I wanted to do other things. But the questions that I had about it um, remained. And then when I became able to supervise and direct students into topics, I actually got people to do different parts of the brand health tracker. So I had okay. someone do a master's on brand awareness measures. Someone else was looking at how to measure brand usage. Someone else was looking at, and everyone was looking at different aspects of brand image and all of these different components or how they come together, plus the R&D I was doing as well. Um, and so that gave us a really good solid body of work, at least in my mind, of how these all things work together. But I realised and over the years that um, this knowledge isn't very well known because when I would talk to people or see people would send me trackers to comment on, I'd see the same well-intentioned but problematic um, changes, solutions, things being implemented in them. Okay. Um, and then, you know, and then, I sort of technically the the brand health book was probably the first book I should have written. Oh. Uh, it was the hardest book to write, so I needed to warm up with a couple before I got to it. 
as you do. So yeah, it was it was it was it, it was much more challenging to write than even the first book on um, how brains grow part two, which your first one's usually the toughest. Yeah. But because this had to deal with because when I've spoken to people, there's been two aspects of the conversation: the bigger picture strategy of what are we trying to achieve, and the recognition that. In a lot of cases, trackers are just not fit for purpose. They were developed, the roots of them were developed at a time when the heavy, loyal buyer is our primary objective, the person we want to understand, the person we want to hear from, which is out of tune with what we know from how brands grow. Right. Um, But then there are also a whole heap of little things that people don't realise can have a massive effect on your capacity to get a good read from the market. Things like how attributes are worded, how your scale is structured and things like that. So this book is an attempt to bring both of those together. The bigger pitch strategy of what are we measuring and why and what do we achieve about it and the very pragmatic of, well, how do you actually word this question? Okay. How do you choose a time frame if you're collecting brand usage and you're in a transactional category where people do multiple purchases? You know, how do you know what's too long? How do you know what's too little? You know, how do you answer those very concrete questions that people have? Um, yeah, and so that's really what I wanted to do. And I wanted to do two things. One is I was hearing people talking about giving up on their brand health trackers because they were oh. so expensive and they felt like they were getting very little value. Um, and secondly, people kept asking me questions about it and I kept thinking more people should know the stuff that we've done and hopefully people will find it useful and be able to improve the quality of the data they have, thereby helping the first question. Right. So don't stop like don't stop tracking your, your brand health because it's very important, but it's about how you enhance well, the changes. It's, it's the only real window we have in so so we see so so when we are battling competitors for sales, we see the results of this in the bottom line. You know, you got this share, you got that share, this share. But actually, the battle took place in people's minds and on shelves, and I mean metaphoric shelves, yes. depending on whatever retail it is. So that part's physical availability, and we do actually have a chapter on that um, in there about you know should physical availability be part of your tracker? The answer is rarely yes. Um, most of it should be separate and we provide some um, suggestions for metrics there. But how do we the, – the brand health tracker at its best is the way that we see whether or not we've laid the groundwork in people's memories such that we do have a chance of success when they go into battle in a buying situation. Well, so I, I mean, there's so much here. I mean, my first thought is, you know, if I'm listening to this and I'm currently, you know, have my – brand health tracker with with whomever and however you know should i be worried that you know it's it's wrong and i need to kind of start over again or is you know i i guess that would be my first thought as, as people kind of think about this and think about well, this book yeah yeah no so so the thing about it so if anyone's expecting some radical reshake up that we're going to be doing here it's actually not about that if anything okay. it's about going back to basics and you know so there, people will recognize the concepts i talk about brand awareness brand attributes um brand attitude word of mouth um you know they should recognize those things and they'll probably find them in there but if we take something like word of mouth for example um often you'll see attributes which are you know brands people talk a lot about so what does that actually mean? Are you actually capturing people's conversation, people's perception that other people are talking? 
whether that person is talking. I mean, it's so fuzzy of what it is in terms of being a word-of-mouthish attribute. And you see that a lot in these things, and they tend to get spread. You know, someone sees it in one questionnaire and goes, oh, I'll borrow that, I'll borrow that, I'll borrow that. So in some cases, if you've already got a questionnaire, hopefully this will give you some insights to be able to tweak it to improve your data quality. It won't require you necessarily to throw it all away, but hopefully it will make you rethink some of the decisions that you might make. Um, If you don't have a tracker and you want it, I'm actually putting up on the website a template tracker that people can take and adapt to their category just so that they've got basically the framework from it and they can kind of put in what they want um, from there. And the idea of that is just to help people at least come up with ask the right questions for themselves. And then, you know, maybe they want to add some stuff that they feel like I've not put in there or whatever, but at least the things I'm recommending, they've got a good basis for. Excellent. Well, that, that, that's great to know. And again, we can share links for, for people on that. And um, so when you think then kind of about the, I guess, the structure of the book, you've talked a bit about it. I know there's kind of you talk about three key laws of growth and the implications of those on mm-hmm. the brand health tracker. So double je- jeopardy, brand user profiles, hardly different. We've covered uh, some of those and then duplication of purchase law. Can you talk about these and then how they can affect how we think about our brand health or should think about our brand health? So, you know, there's a sort of, for want of a better term, mantra that you can have in, when thinking about your tracker. And that is designed for the category analyze for the buyer report for the brand. If you want to make sure you've got a really unbiased view that's not viewed by the perspective of where your brand is now, where your company is now, actually you should be able to march your tracker over to your competitor and they go, yeah, we'd use this questionnaire. And that's one of the things um, that, so design for the category such that you get a really unbiased view. And there are several marketing laws, including the duplication of purchase law which shows about brand competition and that you compete mainly with the big brands less with the small brands there are exceptions to this but they tend to not deviate from the pattern that tell us that this is really important that we look at the category as a whole not through a brand lens when we're designing this questionnaire Analyzing for the buyer is about recognizing the biggest difference when people give responses is that buyers are just so much more likely than non-buyers Okay, so no matter what your brand health metric is, you, you, you slice and dice it by a decent usage measure, you will see this um, in there. And so if you think about it and when we think about growth and we know from double jeopardy that growth comes from very light and non-buyers, imagine you've got a room where you've got about five people, so you've got 20 people in the room, say you have 50 people in the room, you've got five people who are shouting their heads off and then you've got, you know, say 10 or 20 people who are, you know, just talking normally and then you've got the remainder that are whispering or not saying anything at all. From a growth perspective, we want to hear when those people who are whispering or not saying anything more turn it up just a bit. Okay. Because that yeah. gives us an indicator that some of them might be coming over and, you know, we might be a bit more salient next time we're in a buying situation and we've got a better chance of being bought. But we can't hear that if we've also got the people who are shouting in the room. So analysing for the buyer is about going, well, I care about the people who are shouting, you know. I still want them to shout. Yay. Yeah, keep shouting. But can you do it over there in that different room so that I can actually hear what's going on with the rest of the people? Um, so that's the analyse for the buyer and that comes out of the law of double jeopardy. 
Um, and then the third aspect of it is report for the brand. And that also is linked to the double jeopardy law as well. And it's probably linked to all three of them, really. But it's about the fact that the biggest difference between brands is based on their market share. And so your expectation of what your brand should perform should be calibrated by that. So if you're a small brand, yes, you will have lower loyalty. You'll get fewer people linking your brand to any attribute. You'll get lower attitudinal scores. You'll get more people with no opinion about you. You curiously won't get more people disliking you. Typically, big brands tend to have more people yes, disliking because right. they have more people who know them. Yeah. But you will get more people who have no opinion sort of stuff. So these are all just, they're basically just saying, you are a small brand. Um, and so... You need to control for that so that when you're assessing, are you doing better than you should, given where you are, your expectations will be different whether you're a big or a small brand. So reporting should take that into account so that you don't misinterpret the results. For So for big brands, it makes big brands fat and complacent because okay. they think, oh, we scored highest. We scored higher than everybody. Yeah, we're doing great. And what they find out is, uh, yeah, that's what they should have and they've actually been underperforming but you can't tell because they've still got that veneer of being a big brand. And then, you know, for a small brand, sometimes you might kill something because you think it didn't move the needle when it really did. You just didn't have your instruments finely tuned enough to see that. Okay, you weren't able to hear with the with the noise potentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or even because remember that noise is – so that group of light non-buyers is even bigger when you're a small brand. Yeah. So the effects right. – and you see this um, – I do document – so the effects of measurement on your capacity to hear from non-users and for small brands. And it's amazing how, you know, simple things can actually change our capacity to see that, which means simple things can actually change it back so that we do get a better reading of it. Okay. Yeah. So much to um, obviously delve into in that. But I think one of the things, again, that probably strike me, and I know you've said this, there's work with the, the smaller brands, but you know, again, if I'm a, I think any brand, we're, there's, there's a lot more pressure on brands at the moment. There's a lot more pressure on kind of budgets are under pressure. Mm -hmm. We're in difficult times. You know, if, you know, if you're in that situation, like how are you making the case to start making some of these changes? Like what advice would you give to a marketer to go about making these changes? And then my other question possibly tied to that is maybe you get pushback of like, okay, if we make these changes, how are we going to be able to compare what we've previously done and previously reported on brand to our board and our CEO and we make these mm -hmm. changes? How is that going to work? So I think maybe the two might be connected because mm -hmm. under pressure, mm -hmm. how do you go about that? Yeah, no, you've, you've just summed up the, I talk about in the very, in the introduction, the three things that um, hold back trackers, philosophy, fads and fear. Um and philosophy is what I talk about in terms of having the wrong focus and built for the wrong times. And some, you know, there have been attempts to retrofit um, to varying degrees, but no one likes giving up a legacy measure, which is the fear. Yeah. People don't want to give up something, but, you know, um, it's like, you know, I mean, I'd say it, but it is like that old cliche of the drunk looking for his keys under the lamppost. If you're measuring it and it's not giving you useful information, why are you keeping on doing it? You know, tracking something that doesn't work doesn't. seems like a waste of money to me, particularly for a small yeah. brand. Why would you waste that money? Um, and the third thing is fads. Um, often measures get added without any 
basis other than people don't want to miss out. So even before the evidence has been remotely presented, people are rushing to add new measures. So, and because no one wants to give anything up, they just get bloated and bloated. And this is so, so part of it is, you know, if you go through your tracker now and just even think about how many times am I just asking people in various ways, do you like my brand? And you'll probably find there's probably at least two or three different ways you're asking essentially the same question. Yeah. And there's a few tests you can do to work out, you know, the, the fancy term for it is convergent validity. You know, are you really measuring the same thing or are you measuring something different, which is called divergent validity? But, you know, you can actually look at this and often you can get your tracker to be more efficient by just getting rid of the rubbish. Right. Now, if you can't find a good reason why you're tracking it, then why track it? As you, because it's been, we've always tracked this. Therefore, like you know what I mean. That's the that's the the answer probably, which is the. So the we should be riding way. horses because there was a tough period of time when we always <laughs> rode horses. So you're you're denying the car culture. Then um, I do, Connor. You taking a horse to work now? Got your horse and buggy? Oh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No. Yeah. And I, I park at the front. <laughs> And I'm assuming you're not going for that, you know, for newfangled air conditioning stuff or heating because oh no. we have that for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we we learn, on. we improve. Um, one of the greatest uh, things to be able to say is, oh, I learned something today. Yeah. It should improve because I think people often think about this. It should improve the conversations at board level or with CEO. Mm-hmm. Going in and saying, and it's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater either, right? This is saying, you know, we've made adjustments, improvements. We're, we're removing these measures because we believe that there's no validity in them or, you know, they're adding value to us and how we're quite tracking frankly, the brand. I mean, quite frankly, very, the, the most common measure reported to board and discussed by board is actually brand awareness. Yes. But yet, so if you ask people, um, so what do you measure in brand awareness? Um, people talk about brand awareness as if it's some simple thing. Actually, it's three measures measured in two different ways Um, and there are two different purposes that underpin it. And when you actually peel those back, you go, oh, wait a sec, it doesn't make sense. So I do have a chapter on brand awareness that takes what is apparently a simple measure and turns it into a genuinely simple metric that is linked to growth. Are there any measures you think that uh, you would kind of go, look, throw them out, like they should just be gone? Oh, my favourite one to say the answer to that, which always it divides the room, um, would be net promoter score. I don't see any real reason for it. And I've heard the reasons why. One of the reasons people like it is it's apparently simple. But again, what are you actually measuring here? So uh, we've done R&D on the, I mean, lots of people have done R&D and, and pulled it apart. Um, the R&D I've personally been involved with, um, albeit well, in some cases peripherally, sometimes centrally, um, is it's highly correlated with satisfaction. It's just another way of measuring a thing. It has nothing to do with actually what it purports to be, which is about recommendation. Uh, so we did some work that's been published that looked at, you know, do the um, promoters actually promote? Do the detractors actually detract? And what are the, do the passives really do nothing? Um, and the answer is that the passives promote more than the promoters and the detractors promote as much as they detract. Um, <laughs> it's just all over the place. So when you have something that doesn't make sense logically, yeah. conceptually, or empirically, because there's also been studies that look to that, I don't understand 
why you're measuring it. But yet I hear the shorthand being used. I see the measures. Whenever anyone asks yeah. me to fill in the measure, and I give a, I usually give a score and then they say, why is that score? And I tell them, this is a stupid measure. I don't know why you're asking me. Um, so, well, I just, you know, I've got to be blunt about it because yeah, yeah. I think I usually usually give them a score that, you know, panics them. Um, I get thrown out as an outlier. You know, I've asked the question. Yeah. But, yeah, so that's that's one of the ones. But it's more, again, going back to, so if, if you so I did have someone who presented the argument to me that said that if we give our net promoter score, so if we get a net promoter score from our customer and we say that to our sales staff, it gives our sales staff the confidence to be able to go ask that customer for a recommendation. Right. Um, in hindsight, I didn't say this at the time, but I did think afterwards I probably should have said maybe you should invest in self-esteem classes for your sales staff and stop tracking the net promoter score because really you shouldn't need someone go, they, they gave you a, a nine out of 10 on the net promoter score. Ask them for a recommendation. Yes. You should be able to just go, Hey, Connor, would you recommend me for other podcasts yeah. based on yeah. our experience? Um, you know, that's yeah. that. So that to me is like, the relationship like, like it feels sales, like a very yeah. twisted um, roundabout way of trying to justify something that was being done anyway. So that's where I've yet to hear an argument or see an empirical empirical evidence that points to its usefulness okay yeah okay no that's great to get like um i, th I think people will definitely have have views and that i look forward to reading more about it we're, we're mm -hmm. really at the end but i had two last questions for you one is again tied to kind of the more challenging environment that i think marketers find themselves and it's different in different markets and different countries and um, what advice would you have for for marketers as they face into this? And you know, again, budgets are coming under under pressure. I think just generally, you know, I think there's certainly pressure on you know focusing on performance over brand for some marketers. You know, really mm -hmm. focusing on on that kind of shorter shorter returns. Any advice you would have for for marketers kind of facing into that um, in the coming months? Um. Yeah, I mean, remember that whenever you switch, and I, th I think um, uh, uh, some uh, the, the piece that um, Pete Weinberg and John Lombardo wrote um, for, um, I think it was Marketing Week, they wrote on, um, you know, why in a recession it should be the 99-1 rule yeah. rather than the, which is a play on the 95-5 rule that um, my colleague John Dawes came up with. But their point is, you know, particularly in B2B sector. And, you know, what they say holds in somewhat for B2C is people contract. Um, they, they, they basically delay purchasing. So if you're only relying on trying to get to the people who are in the market right now, you're facing an extremely competitive playing field and your chance of success um, just gets diminished. So trying to play the short game and not the long game is just going to lead to potentially unprofitable tactics. So it's a it's a tough thing. I mean, you know, you can do things like look at your portfolio. It may be that how you're allocating spend across your portfolio could change right. given the, the times of what it is, and that varies with category. I mean, it's not like in a recession no one buys fancy stuff. It's just what, consider pe what people consider a treat may change. So if you have a look at your portfolio and you go, what do we have that satisfies the different category? Entry? What category entry points are going up in a recession and what may be a being downplayed? They might happen for fewer people or less often. 
and just really understand that and then look at your map your portfolio and see and that might allocate you know where are you putting your spend in terms of your advertising budget your any sort of in-store activities or online activities um then that can help you just be a little bit smarter in your resource allocation right um yeah. but do realize there's no quick fix for this um yeah yeah D- certainly challenging times ahead but i think people are we're lucky you know it's a great um you know marketing industry is fascinating i think there's so much great work out there like the work that you do but you know so many others adding kind of to the the discussion and i think helping marketers make the case for some of the things that we know are Mm -hmm. important and i think that's what's wonderful is there's a lot of evidence there's so much evidence now to kind of help support um, what we need to do and that's one of the things when we talk about the laws of growth and we present them to boards um, or C-suite beyond marketing, um, suddenly the CFOs go, oh, this makes sense to me. I see yeah. that marketers are not just making this stuff up. They've actually got a reason and it's based in evidence of why they're doing what they're doing. Um, and it gives, you know, it, it gives more credibility to when you do make a decision or change direction. There's a reason for it. I mean, we used to talk about the fact that, you know, marketer comes in, suddenly has a different philosophy of marketing and everything changes. When's the yeah. last time an accountant or a CFO came in and went, you know, those old accounting rules we're using, I don't like them anymore. I've got my own accounting rules that we're going to follow. Yeah, we, won't ca- we won't carry and, the and one so- anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, oh, you know, it's carried interest. We don't care about that. Uh, whatever. But, you know, so that's where, you know, once we've got a solid basis, it gives us more credibility, which gives us the ability to, you know, get more resources and get more resources in the long term so we're not constantly fighting for them. So we can invest in building brands for the long term. Um, I was going to ask you as my last question, but – what the leg, what you hope the legacy of, of the book will will be, and the impact of it. But I actually think you, you've sort of answered it, right? And and if I can kind of summarize it, I think it is going to help us make better decisions and help us make better cases to you know our our boards and our CEOs and CFOs around what we're doing. You, you earlier on you, you used the word um, fuzzy relating to something else, and I think sometimes marketing does seem and can come, you know, be perceived as being, being fuzzy. And I think the more we can do to, you know, to lean into, you know, the, the depth of research that you have and provide us and, and kind of use that as a framework going forward. So uh, I don't know, for you, is there anything else that you kind of hope for as terms of the legacy of, of this book and the impact it will have? I just want us all to have better quality data to make decisions and make discoveries. Um, Because to me, those two things go hand in hand. You have the immediate use of data, which is I've got to make a call on did that ad campaign work or not or what effect did it have, et cetera. But there's also the longer-term use of data, which is to advance our knowledge generally about how advertising works, how we change memories, how brands grow, all of that. And the more we have better quality data across everything that we do, uh, just the the better for the industry in total. So that's my hope for the book is um, I just would like to see better quality data all round because I think that is a good thing for everybody. Yeah, brilliant. Jenny, thank you so much for taking the time to talk us through um, so much of your work. I mean, so we could have spent eight hours talking about just one of the books, but and then obviously with your new book, Better Brand Health, out now available to order pre-order and I, I can't wait to to get my copy um and thank you so much it was a pleasure 
So I hope you enjoyed that episode with Jenny Romaniuk. It was a real privilege to carry out Jenny's first interview for her new book, Better Brand Health. Clearly, Jenny's work is based on deep research and data. But what I like about Jenny's approach is how realistic she is. She isn't saying we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's about improving what we are doing and making sure we are even being more effective in our marketing and reporting, more scientific in our approach. If you want to get Jenny's new book, Better Brand Health, you can find links to pre-order or order at JennyRomaniuk.com. And I will leave that link in the notes of this episode. So that's it for me, Connor Byrne. Thanks for listening to That's What I Call Marketing. If you did enjoy, please do share, add comments and like this episode. Follow us on Twitter at That's Underscore Marketing. And if you or someone you know would be a great guest for this podcast, get in touch. I'm going to add the email address into the show description, as well as the links for Jenny and her new book. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take care.